We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week. The numbers are finally in. Israel's economy has contracted 20% year on year. It seems the only consolation is that it's still doing better than the economy of Gaza. How long can this level of decline go on? With no end to the war in sight and a new front in Lebanon cracking open, are we witnessing Israel's fall from the first rank of the OECD? Meanwhile, remember the war no one cared about? You know, the second Nagorno-Karabakh war? of September 2020, between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Well, what would you say if we told you the world stands on the brink of Armenia-Azerbaijan War 3? Nothing much? Finally, a new Treasury Committee report says that the Bank of England will have lost £80 billion by the end of the year. That's cash, not just a paper loss. In fact, the full paper loss is around £250 billion. That means the new bank debt shoveled on the government's books this year is close to the entire defence budget. Given the present intellectual state of the bank, only one question remains. Does anybody have a bridge to sell them? But first... Oy vey. Absolutely shocking numbers out of Israel this week, um, showing that the Israeli economy shrank nearly 20% in annualized term in the final quarter of 2023. Uh, We're just highlighting that again, 20%, one-fifth of economic activity in Israel at the end of 2023 evaporated. Now, you could say that's completely unprecedented, and up until very recently that would have been completely unprecedented. Of course, we saw similar enormous GDP contractions during the lockdowns, when effectively people uh, climbed into their pyjamas and didn't go to work. Um, but that had a very clear um, you know, end point in a sense. Well, it didn't at the time, if we, if we all remember it, but in retrospect, it had a very clear end point. It was about a quarter a, a single quarter uh, was carved out for the lockdowns, and after that, people got out of their pajamas and went back to work. Um, in Israel, that doesn't appear to be the case. This uh, this is uh, this contraction in GDP is, by all accounts, um, due to the call up of three hundred thousand reservists, which is a lot of people in a country like Israel, which is quite small. Um, and these people have effectively been sucked out of the, the labor force. Um, they are called up for the foreseeable future. They are called up until the various conflicts in Israel, whether it be Hamas or the boiling conflict with uh, Hezbollah. Uh, and we can also talk about what's about to happen in Rafa and the relationship to Egypt. These reservists are presumably gone from the labor force until this stuff winds down. And until this stuff winds down, therefore, the GDP of Israel is a fifth lower than it used to be. So a few things to say about this. Um, First of all, I don't think that's sustainable. The amount of tax revenue alone that's lost by a 20% GDP contraction is mind-blowing, really. It'll probably be more than 20% of tax revenue will be my guess. Um, And of course, expenditure, government expenditure is presumably rising um, in order to feed, house these 300 reservists. 
At the same time, um, Israel, the government is sponsoring housing for more than 120,000 Israelis that have been evacuated from the north, uh, where Hezbollah are attacking, um, and the southern uh, border areas of the country. So these people have to be relocated, and that's costing money too. Um, so that seems very, very uh, unstable to me. Um, and of course, it'll just have kind of mechanical impacts on various various um, uh, measures that people pay attention to. Just off the top of my head, government debt to GDP. We always talk about the burden of government debt on a country being government debt to GDP. Well, if the GDP falls substantially, your government debt to GDP enormously, uh, immediately, mechanically, uh, skyrockets effectively. And at that point, I think bond markets will have to start calling into question how sustainable that debt is um, moving forward. Just to give some other statistics that stood out from this statistical release, um, consumers are spending 27% less. Now, some of that maybe is the fact that uh, it, it's a switch from the actual private consumption that the reservists were, that the people who are now reservists um, were spending have now switched into kind of government consumption. But it also seems credible to me that consumption would fall drastically in the mobil in the midst of the mobilization that we're seeing in Israel and just the general sense of panic as well. I mean, obviously Hamas are, as far as I know, continuing to fire rockets into Israel, so it can't be a very pleasant situation. Um, consumer confidence is, com is completely beat. It's down, uh, down 30 points. Uh, most other metrics are holding up pretty well. There's no serious inflation for now. Um, and unemployment's pretty low. That's not surprising given the fact that uh, a bunch of people have been taken out of the labor force. But it would it would seem unusual to me that an economy can contract by 20% without starting to impact uh, other macroeconomic variables. In the lockdown, we saw inflation come through further down the pike, as it were. Um, but as I said, the lockdown was only really there for, for a quarter, for about three months. Um, whereas here, we have a much more permanent situation. One or two other numbers. Um, so g government spending has actually, we have a number for it, it's, it's risen 88% in the three months after the outbreak of war. So government spending's almost doubled. A uh, little bit worrying if your economy's just contracted by 20%. Um, the uh, imports uh, have fallen uh, 40%, 42%, which is mind-bending as well. And exports have dropped 18%, which is pretty bad. I mean, I guess that's that's good in so far as uh, Israel won't be burdened with a serious trade deficit, at least for now. Um, I guess we'll see moving forward. But, you know, that must represent a massive fall in living standards for Israel. So I guess, I mean, this raises a lot of questions. I mean, it, it goes right up to can Israel afford this war? Can they afford to do what they're doing? But I think, I think the main thing that I'd highlight is... Um, Israel is a very much so a modern economy. Um, it's got a lot of technology firms. It's got a startup culture, all that kind of thing. And um, and and if this goes on uh, for much longer, I I I can't see it uh, maintaining that reputation as being a modern, stable economy in which you can go and grow an international business or whatever. Um, I think they're risking turning themselves into a basket case, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, when I read this, I you know i wasn't surprised because any economy at you know any country where they have to call up a significant proportion of their population to fight a war 
uh, is going to suffer from lost economic output because that significant portion of the population would have been working in the regular economy. And so they lose that kind of uh, labor output. Um, in addition to that, of course, they've got to pay for all this. It, you know, war is the most expensive activity known to man. So a lot of this doesn't really surprise me. But I wonder, Philip, uh, you know, my instinct is to say that Israel should be fine because, you know, Israel understands the position that it's in. Israel is very experienced at having to do this. And therefore, it's likely prepared. It likely has systems in place. It likely has public administrators, whether on the political side or the bureaucratic side, who are used to dealing with such situations. And in addition to that, businesses are used to dealing with such situations. So while for now the economy might, you know, fall, as soon as those soldiers start to come back, it'll, you know, bounce back. And because of their experience and because of the systems that they likely have set up, there won't be too much of a long-term effect on this. I mean, what would you have to say about that kind of my instinctive reaction to this news? I mean, you say you're not surprised. Um, I'm surprised. 20%. I mean, I would have thought maybe, you know, 5%, maybe 10 no, but I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, Israel, the, sorry, the Ukrainian economy lost 30% of its uh, GDP in the first year of the conflict with Russia. Now, it is true that Russia was able to target and degrade, um, you know, dual military and civilian use infrastructure like power grids, telecommunications, roads, etc., you know, the logistics um, hubs, etc., etc., but by the same token, Ukraine didn't have to call up the same kind of proportion of its working age men to go and fight. You know, I mean, uh, so, you know, 20% doesn't sound like too horrendous for like a country that essentially has to call up all of its able-bodied uh, young men to go and fight, right? Well, I, I'm not sure of that. I mean, for, just for example, uh, that happened in World War One and World War Two. We never saw twenty percent decline in the economies uh, of the either the Allied or the Axis powers because they retooled for war production. They actually tended to increase. Um, comparing it to the absolute catastrophe that Ukraine suffered after the 2014 Russian takeover of Crimea and so on, I don't. I don't think that bodes very positively for Israel. Um, Ukraine after that was known as a basket case economy. Um, and I think it pretty much still remains uh, that to this day. It's wholly supported at the moment by foreign aid. The last thing I'd say is you, you mentioned uh, the experience of the past. Well, you know, I pulled up some statistics and obviously the, the last time Israel had a major war, uh, the, the two last instances were the 1968 war uh, that was the Six-Day War, I believe, and the 1973 Yom Kippur War, um, which was actually larger. In 1973, the Israeli economy grew by 5.6%, and in 1968, it grew by 2.3%. So I, I don't know fully why Israel is get the Israeli economy is getting so absolutely obliterated by this particular call-up and this particular form of warfare. My instinct is that we actually aren't used to this kind of thing in a modern consumer and services-oriented economy. That when we experienced this kind of thing in the past, we were dealing with um, 
heavily industrialized wars where the economies were retooled, something similar that we're seeing in Russia right now. And what we're seeing here is a very westernized economy. I mean, I've never been to Israel, but I have friends who visit Israel quite regularly. And Israel is 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 like Europe. I mean, it really is like Europe in the Middle East. And, um, and having an economy that's so reliant on consumption and services and removing, as you say, all these able-bodied men, consumers, spreading, you know, a certain amount of fear and panic in the population. Um, can sh- I, I think what we're seeing is just how fragile economies like this are to these kind of dynamics. Um, maybe it'll pass. Maybe we'll, maybe in a year's time, this lull of wound down and that uh, GDP will, will whipsaw back up 20% like we saw during the lockdowns after the s- single quarter of shutting down our economies. But it's very, very hard for me to think through let's say a year of 20% GDP decline without having some sort of dynamic effect on the economy, thinking specifically about inflation. Yeah, so two questions here. First, you know, the first question would be, if it is a, you know, if your instinct is to say, well, look, in the past and in, say, uh, the Russian Federation today, uh, we and uh, and they today are were and are able to cope better with this sort of shock because they are, and they were, industrial economies that essentially shift industrial production from, you know, whatever it was they were doing before to a kind of wartime production. So everything stays essentially the same, but with a bit more kind of government spending and funding, and that might provide a little lift to the economy, if anything. Whereas Israel is a consumer economy like the West, and these are far more fragile. But if that is the case, maybe we'll see a real kind of V-shaped recession recovery where you get this kind of, you know, this drop-off where the consumer economy is is affected essentially by an all-stop. But then as soon as people come back, you get that kind of pent-up demand where people weren't and couldn't buy their consumer goods. They couldn't go out. They couldn't do all of those things. And you really get that pent-up demand where once this is over, it all kind of springs back extraordinarily quickly. So perhaps we should not be, you know, not assume that this is going to have, as you say, the kind of dynamic, potentially non-linear effect on the Israeli economy that that would suggest beyond perhaps, you know, the inflation when things start you know, do start bouncing back. Again, it's worth highlighting the lockdowns uh, didn't uh, cause minimal disruptions. The lockdowns were enormously disruptive. The first round of inflation that we got were effectively due to the lockdowns. The second round was obviously due to the Ukraine war. But the initial burst of inflation was wholly due to the lockdowns. And that that lockdown only took place, as I said, for about three months. This is very similar to things we've discussed with the Red Sea situation. The the traffic volume that we've seen uh, uh, in the Red Sea situation is probably, the, the decline is probably less than the overall decline in global shipping associated with the lockdowns. But it's it's got the potential to stay there for longer. And that strikes me uh, as being very possibly, if not probably, the case in Israel. We've we've covered the Israeli situation here before. We've had Malcolm Cheyune on about it. And I think my base case uh, a situation for Israel is that they're going to be in conflict in the region for quite a while. 
I mean, the the Hamas oper the anti-Hamas operation in Gaza has been stated to, uh, by the Israeli military, as far as I know, to to um, take a year. They they think it's going to take a year. That was the initial uh, estimate. Now there are things heating up on the northern border with Hezbollah. I mean, I mentioned earlier that there are 120,000 displaced Israelis. In order to get them back, especially uh, in, in northern Israel, they effectively have to go to war with Hezbollah, which is what they're talking about right now. So um, I don't think it would be unreasonable to think that this conflict goes on for one, two, three, four years. Now, yes, we, we have an experiment um, where we shut down uh, you know, 20%, 25% of Western economies for three months. I, I thought it was a crazy experiment, and I think the effects were extremely negative, and we're continuing to live with them to this day. Um, but this looks much worse to me because it doesn't have a clear endpoint, number one. It's also not fully in the control of the government, remember, that the lockdown, at least notionally, could be pulled back by the government. Now, in practice, it couldn't have been. They had to acclimatise the population and so on. We all remember it. But, you know, notionally, they could make a decision and say it's time to start winding this back. The Israel situation, everything we've seen is it just seems to spiral and spiral and nobody seems to have control over it. And the last thing I'd say is Israel is a wealthy country. Um, it has a lot of kind of entrepreneurial talent. You see companies grow up there and so on. But the first thing I'd say is I don't think it will remain that if this continues to go on. This kind of economic turmoil cannot be tolerable for people who can be working elsewhere. Many people in Israel are dual citizens. The ones that aren't are very well educated. They can easily go to Western countries. Their English is good. They're culturally Western. Um, they'll have no problem getting a job elsewhere. So that, that's one problem. And the other thing I'd say is, although Israel is a wealthy country uh, with, until now, a stable economy, it's also a small country. And small countries have a lot less um, they have a lot less room for maneuver engaging in these kind of risky economic experiments than larger countries. And what I'd watch in that regard is the is the Israeli currency or any sort of attack by the bond markets that get concerned with their potential for credit ratings and so on. Not just the credit rating of the sovereign, but the credit rating of all the companies within Israel. I mean, how long can companies, domestic companies, service their debt load when the uh, when GDPs declined by 20%, we saw some serious issues with that in the lockdown that required government support, if you realize them. Now, what is in Israel's favor here is it has a very strong ally in the in the in in the in the uh, country of the United States. And although the United States has its economic problems, we talk about them from time to time, it can easily pull pull a country like Israel along. But the problem with that is that then Israel becomes a dependency economy, much like Ukraine is today. And that tends to that tends to sap a lot of sovereignty from the country. It tends to kind of destroy the domestic economy, making it sort of almost a welfare recipient. So although that might st stave off any potential collapse if things get very nasty in the finance markets, it will completely, I think, drain the productive capacity and entrepreneurial spirit and the general kind of joie de vivre of the economy itself. Very briefly, before we move on to our next subject, you mentioned before that uh, spending had surged, even as GDP, and thus one would assume tax rate receipts, were falling. Um, how long... Perhaps you don't have an exact answer to this because the numbers have just come out and you're not a kind of 
Israel expert macroeconomist. But, you know, I think it's worth guiding our listeners towards, you know, questions of, first of all, how long Israel can kind of fund this sort of deficit. And I assume it's it's really a huge deficit, fiscal deficit as well, uh, before it really starts running into the rocks. But additionally, if is you know if it becomes apparent that Israel is struggling in macroeconomic terms, you know that might also encourage some of its regional you know adversaries to try to take advantage, right? Yeah, I mean, I if I were their regional adversaries and I saw these types of numbers, I'd probably start thinking about putting pressure on parts of their economy. Maybe they're already doing that. In terms of how long they can continue this, um, normally I'd say not very long. If the government deficit blows out, if um, if 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 the all the variables start looking really crazy, eventually I think the shekel will come under pressure. But as I said, you know they have they have friends in high places in America. I don't just mean in government. I mean I could. I mean if I was the Israeli government right now, I'd probably be thinking of like issuing war bonds to wealthy uh, Israeli supporting Jewish people in uh, the UK and the US you could you could undertake a program like that we've seen that in history so I think I think they're probably in a pretty they're they're in the best possible position I think of any country in the world you know that I can think of off the top of my head to try and secure financing to get them through a tough spot here but again I'm just highlighting even if they succeed in doing that, um, becoming a sort of a welfare recipient will really sap the life out of your economy. And and given what Israel have built in economic terms over the past 40 years, which has been extremely impressive, it's by far the most impressive economy in the region, um, that, that would be a bit of a tragedy, really. Nagorno-Karabakh to the future. A couple of days ago, at the time of recording, Nikol Pashinyan, the... Uh, Prime Minister of Armenia, uh, reported that he believed Azerbaijan was preparing for a full-scale war against Armenia, which is very serious news indeed, and I'm surprised it hasn't got more coverage. Um, Listeners will remember that a couple of years ago, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia fought a short and brutal war over the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which was a um, an ethnically Armenian enclave within internationally recognised Azerbaijani territory. It was also uh, administered by a independent government uh, against the wishes of Azerbaijan, with very strong links to Armenia. And the two sides fought a war in which Armenia were uh, defeated and had to reach a you know, for Armenia, quite an unpleasant uh, peace. Um, Between then and uh, last summer, or last autumn, the uh, Armenians and Azerbaijanis were negotiating on a whole range of matters. They came to nothing, and then Azerbaijan once again uh, brought more limited military power to bear, and uh, Armenia offered no resistance, and um, ethnic Armenians fled from the entirety of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is now fully administered and controlled by Azerbaijan. Since then, though, negotiations about normalization of uh, uh, relations and the demilitarization of uh, border areas 
have continued. And the main bone of contention is uh, the Azerbaijani uh, desire to build a road, a, a, a transport link, through uh, a, an area of Armenia called uh, the Zangazur Corridor. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's how it's spelled, the Zangazur Corridor, which would basically link kind of mainland Azerbaijan, if you like, with an Azerbaijani exclave called uh, Nakhchivan and Turkey itself. Uh, Nakhchivan is kind of a sandwiched between Armenia and Turkey, and a, a, a road through the Zangzagur corridor would link Azerbaijan with its major ally, Turkey, and Azerbaijan's exclave, uh, Nakhchivan. Armenia is obviously extremely reluctant to build this uh, road because it would mean, um, you know, it would mean Azerbaijani administration of a, a sliver of Armenian territory, which is, you know, very hard for it to swallow. And now it looks as though, if Mr. Pashinyan is to be believed, that Azerbaijan is um, preparing to take matters into its own hands on this matter. So here we are, Philip Pilkington. We have uh, another war brewing, yet another war. And I, I think this is a really important point that people need to bear in mind because one of our core points here in Multipolarity, or one of our core theses, is that as the world shifts from a unipolar to a multipolar world order, and absent an acceptance of that and an effort to rebuild or retool existing global institutions or build new global institutions that reflect the multipolar reality, then what will happen is you will have these hotspots, existing hotspots around the world, whether they be in the Middle East or in the Caucasus, which is one of the, the traditional um, you know, points at which conflict has flared up through thousands of years of history, um, or, you know, in places like South America, there's a, you know, a conflict, uh, you know, a simmering, um, uh, you know, a concern about conflict between Venezuela and Guyana at the moment. And, you know, we've spoken even about the Falklands before. And, and listeners need to understand that as the multipolar world uh, becomes increasingly uh, obvious and increasingly the reality on the ground, and as the unipolar world recedes, we're going to see more and more of these flare-ups of of ancient or, or ongoing conflicts, and this is going to be an important trend to watch. And certainly, the Armenia-Azerbaijan um, rumbling conflict that's been going on for some uh, thirty years is very much one of those. I haven't followed this as closely as you have, but you know, out of the corner of my eye, it kind of looks like what you might call a multipolar mess in a sense. I I don't fully understand it. It it seems to me that um that Armenia have these close ties with countries like Iran, and then they're kind of you know doing things that are alienating these key allies. Um, I mean, the, the Prime Minister here, I have a report from today, uh, from Pashinyan, and he says, our relations with Iran are deep, and Armenia remains committed to those relations, but this is one of those cases where not everything is clear. Our good relations with Iran are causing tensions in some places, while our good relations with other countries are causing tensions in Iran. 
And it seems to me that a lot of these um, a lot of these tensions are being caused by a very strong push on the part of Armenia, or at least its current uh, uh, prime minister, um, to to have better uh, relations with the West. Um, in this article, it says Pashinyan and his political team are saying that. Uh, they are diversifying Armenia's traditional foreign and security re- uh, policy in response to what they see as Russia's failure to meet uh, security commitments to the to its uh, South Caucasus ally. And, and this just strikes me as, you know, on its face, you'd say, oh, yeah, of course, well, we're moving into a multipolar world. And so the whole key in a multipolar world is to try and build some sort of new alliance structure that works for your particular country. But in this instance, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like they're just kind of they're just kind of screwing it up in a sense. Um, my sense has always been that the Americans, um, you know, make friendly noises to Armenia and then kind of leave, leave them out in the cold. But even beyond that, you know, shaking up uh, shaking up um, uh, tensions uh, with with you know someone on your border who's been a very core ally to you seems very strange when you're facing down, frankly, the barrel of a gun. Um, the last thing I'd say is in terms of in terms of militaries, my understanding is basically that that both of them do have serious militaries. We we looked at um at the uh, potential conflict between Venezuela and Guyana a few weeks ago, and of course Venezuela had a pretty serious army, not a great one, but a pretty serious army, and um, Guyana basically had none. Uh, that's not really the case here. But both both have armies, but the Azerbaijani army is substantially larger and substantially better equipped. Just to give some sense, uh, active personnel in the Az- Azerbaijani armed forces are 126. 6,400 people, uh, while there's 70,600 in the Armenian armed forces. Now, of course, that's not, you, you, that doesn't instantly mean that you lose. We've, we've seen many wars in history where the relatively smaller side can win. But when you look at the equipment, you get the sense that Azerbaijan has pretty sophisticated S-300 air defense systems. Uh, it's got about 800 tanks. And then Armenia has maybe 220 tanks. Um, and I don't think it has some very sophisticated air defense systems. Um, so, you know, it kind of looks like Armenia is kind of the weak one here, and they're doing this kind of experimental foreign policy, which maybe you can explain a bit better than me, but I'm not really sure what they're, what they're trying to do by building these Western relationships and alienating people in the region. Maybe there's a logic to it, but it seems to me, just as someone who doesn't know that much about this, the stakes are very large for them to be doing this. Is, is the payoff very large? No, is the answer, unfortunately, for Armenia. Um, and you're quite right. It, it, it seems increasingly that Pashinyan has played his hand very badly. To give people some background to this, um, Armenia is has traditionally and, and, and throughout a lot of history been a close ally to Russia. It's, a, it's an orthodox Christian country, perhaps, uh, or, or, or perhaps they have their own version of uh, Christian, uh, you know, Christian orthodoxy, but it's the oldest or certainly one of the oldest Christian countries in the world or Christian cultures in the world. And traditionally, it's been a very close ally to Russia. However, uh, Nikol Pashinyan has always been a Western and European-leaning uh, politician, even when he was a journalist and, you know, before he became a leading politician and eventually prime minister. And since he has been prime minister, he has had uh, difficult relations with Russia. Um, however, they are a member of the uh, Russian-led collective security treaty organization the 
CSTO, which is often called the kind of Russian NATO, uh, which involves uh, Russia and uh, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Belarus, as well as Armenia. And Russia is, of course, the security guarantor uh, of Armenia. However, as I say, they, they've had increasingly difficult relations with Russia. Uh, Russia was constantly encouraging Armenia to make a deal with Azerbaijan uh, over Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, especially, as Russia correctly pointed out, that Azerbaijan had a far stronger military. And although Armenia won the war in the early 90s, it was likely that Azerbaijan would win any war that came up, and that indeed came to pass. Pashinyan then attempted to shift the blame quite cunningly from a political point of view for the, for the loss of Nagorno-Karabakh onto Russia. You know, what use is a Russian security guarantee when we lose wars of aggression? But of course, the problem was that Nagorno-Karabakh was internationally recognized as Azerbaijani territory, and it wasn't covered, therefore, by Russia's security guarantee to Armenia. And this has made... Um, relations worse. Meantime, of course, at the moment, the West, Western nations are trying anything that they can to uh, destabilize Russia and to and to really win the kind of like the great game of strategy against Russia for obvious reasons. Everybody understands why they want to do that. Um, and it's offered Armenia a chance to build relations with the West. And in terms of this, France is taking a lead. Uh, France has a very large Armenian diaspora. I think outside the US, it's the largest Armenian diaspora in the world is in France, and has recently agreed to supply it weaponry. Of course, this is alienating Russia even more, because the last thing that Russia wants is for the West to get a toehold in the Caucasus, which, exactly why, which is exactly why the West is suddenly courting Armenia. But the other problem is that Armenia's other big ally in the region was Iran. Iran has a very sizable Azerbaijani uh, minority in the northwest of Iran. And this is something that the US has long sought to use to destabilize the Iranian regime. Um, Iran is a traditional rival of um, uh, Turk and Turkic power within the Caucasus region. Uh, this is something that's been going on for thousands of years. So it's seen an alliance with Armenia as crucial to preventing Turkey uh, projecting its power farther into the Caucasus. Um, so for that reason, it, is, it has traditionally been against Azerbaijani efforts to build a link from Azerbaijan to Turkey through um, the Zangazur corridor. Furthermore, the existing road that links Azerbaijan with uh, Nakhchivan and Turkey goes through Iran. And Iran doesn't want to lose that kind of control and power. However, suddenly, now that Armenia is controlling the West, uh, and especially, you know, France and the United States, which has kind of had its throat, uh, had its hands around Iran's throat for a great many years, the Iranians are suddenly kind of backing off Armenia as well. So Armenia has kind of, you know, had this desire to go and move farther toward the West, which is fine. It's entirely up to them. But of course, actions have consequences in the world. And it seems that Armenia is increasingly isolated and surrounded by a local rival, which is much more powerful, much richer, much bigger, much more populous with a much bigger army in Azerbaijan. 
but also now surrounded not just by Turkey as its old and ancient enemy, which our listeners will know about, but it's also managed to alienate the other two major powers in the Caucasus region, Russia and Iran. And things look really very bad for Armenia indeed. It, you know, it could face essentially Azerbaijan taking the uh, Zangzagir corridor itself militarily and having no friends. You know, in the past, it could have relied on Russia. Um, and, you know, maybe you'll say that, well, it can't rely on Russia at the moment because Russia's fighting a war in Ukraine. But okay, it could have probably relied on Iran to be extremely unhappy about this. But now it appears with its flirtation with the West and with its agreement to uh, receive or maybe buy arms from France, which France has agreed to do, uh, it's alienated Iran while making Armenia, uh, making Azerbaijan think, you know, if they're going to start being armed by the West, we need to move now or never. So it really seems that poor Armenia has managed to alienate pretty much everybody in the region. Um, perhaps I'm missing something. Perhaps this is 4D chess and uh, Nikol Pashinyan is just flirting with the West in order to get Russia to swing more behind it than it has been previously. But I doubt it. Um, and it seems that this could be yet another war, but even more serious this time because... Um, it would be a you know war against Armenian sovereign territory rather than Nagorno-Karabakh, which was internationally recognized as Azerbaijani. I would add here that the West does have interests. For instance, Azerbaijan signed a huge gas contract with the EU, which, as we know, is desperate to make up for the gas that it now refuses to buy from Russia. Uh, you know, it sanctioned Russian gas. Um, so whether Armenia could even rely on the EU uh, to go against Azerbaijan in such circumstances is another question. And of course, given Armenia is landlocked and surrounded by, you know, Russia-friendly, uh, or, you know, at, at least not Russia-unfriendly these days, Georgia and Turkey and Azerbaijan, you know, how how is Europe and NATO going to be able to supply Armenia to defend it? It really seems like a very bad position indeed, and it... You know, and that's quite apart from the fact that Armenia relies on Russia economically. You know, a huge portion of its GDP through remittances and trade is linked with Russia. So it, it just appears at present, unless something changes, that Nikol Pashinyan has played his hand extremely poorly. And we may be on the verge of yet another war and another rewriting of uh, borders. Bailey Outy. So I think we can start with a philosophical reflection this week. If a central bank loses to taxpayer an absolutely huge amount of money and no journalists decide to cover it, do the losses really exist? Well, we're finding out with the Bank of England uh, this week um, or over the past couple of weeks. There's been a remarkable report out of, uh, out of the Treasury Committee. Uh, that's the the committee, uh, the government, the governmental parliamentary uh, committee that that you know over provides oversight on the treasury and the Bank of England. And um, I mean, where do you start with this report? Uh, the title, the title on the website of Parliament is uh, "Bank of England has taken a leap in the dark on quantitative tightening." Treasury committee concludes. Uh, quantitative tightening is the reversal of the quantitative easing programs um, that have been in place for now uh, 15 years, more than 15 years, well, 
give or take. And quantitative tightening is is an attempt to reverse that. That is effectively um, selling of the massive amounts of bonds that they purchased um, over the past 15 years. This report is incredibly critical of the quantitative tightening program and its ramifications, but it's also implicitly critical of the quantitative easing programs, because, of course, without quantitative easing, you'd get no quantitative tightening. Um, You wouldn't need it. There wouldn't be any bonds to sell if they hadn't previously bought them. Um, So the real thing that stands out here, there's quite a bit in the report calling into question whether the QE program was a good idea. There wasn't much consensus on that. We can talk about that in a moment. But the the really top tier thing that stands out here are the fact that there's going to be enormous losses from the quantitative tightening program. And due to a letter of indemnity that was signed by the then Chancellor to the then Bank of England governor, I think this was in 2008 or 2009, the Treasury is on the hook for this, i.e. the taxpayer is on the hook for this. Maybe not directly, but it will. if, if, the ta- if taxes aren't raised, obviously it'll add to the public deficit and to public debt in a, at a time when Britain is, for want of a better term, broke. Um, the potential losses here are pretty large. So reading directly from the committee's report, annual losses in each of 2023 and 2024 will amount to 40 billion pounds. So it's 40 billion pounds lost in 2023, 40 billion pounds lost in 2024. Just to give some context to that, in 2022 when Liz Truss was uh, became prime minister, she suggested 30 billion pounds Uh, to finance tax cuts. Now, think of those tax cuts what you will. I wasn't a huge fan. Um, It was £30 billion put on the table, and it created a fiscal crisis, if people recall. And one of the institutions that pushed back on Liz Truss, some would argue, let the government drown, was the Bank of England. So if Liz Truss puts £30 billion on the table and says, I want to undertake a policy for which I know Liz Truss wasn't elected, but her party was. So, you know, there's some democratic mandate for it. That's verboten. That's not allowed. But if the Bank of England, you know, engages in some wacky monetary policy experiment, which is what they've done for 15 years, and can't really even justify it, frankly, we can get back to that. And then they accrue £40 billion in losses, 2023, 2024, apparently not much accountability. So, The committee um, was not pleased with this. Um, Again, quoting from the report, notwithstanding the operational independence of the monetary policy, it strikes us as highly anomalous that decisions have been and are being taken concerning huge sums of public money without any regard to the usual value for money requirements. Um, Just one more component to this before we, we discuss it, just to get the facts right. That 40 billion... Uh, that forty billion and forty billion. That's not all. Uh, another part of the report. One area of high uncertainty related to the potential overall losses, which may be incurred by QE and QT. It was estimated between fifty billion and one hundred and thirty billion pounds throughout the life, uh, lifetime of the programs, with potentially significant impacts for Her Majesty's Treasury spending power for the next decade. I would say that these are very optimistic. Um, 
forecast because they assume that there won't be any more inflation. If there's another round of inflation, for example, from tensions in the Red Sea, from spreading global turmoil, all the stuff we talk about in the podcast over and over again, these losses could easily double. Uh, they could eat, they could triple, conceivably. Um, and yet, here's the strange thing. This report was released on the 7th of February. It's now the uh, day of recording is the 19th of February. This hasn't been covered. I wrote an article about it for Unheard. Uh, a Politico journalist has been pretty doggedly um, chasing this. But most people don't actually know this is happening. Most people in the general public do not know that the Bank of England last year lost the public treasury more money, 25% more money, than Liz Truss's tax cuts. This just isn't talked about. And it's absolutely mystifying. I, I, I don't really want to risk engaging in overstatement, but I've never seen anything like this. You'd think that journalists would be interested in the fact that the Bank of England has just lost an absolute wad of money at a time when the country's effectively broke and no no government, whether it be Liz Truss's tax cuts or the desire on the part of Labour to engage in massive public spending, for better or for worse, none of these governments can do it because they're financially constrained. And yet we just skate over the fact that a huge component to this uh, this mess we're in is the Bank of England itself. And, and the Treasury Committee have said that, again, to quote, potentially significant impacts for Her Majesty's Treasury's spending power for the next decade. For a decade. This is just wild. I mean, the, the, the story itself is wild enough. The fact that it's just not being covered in the media is just mind-blowing. I know we have a very educated audience here from the kind of feedback that we get. Um, I think it's worth just explaining to people a little bit about the mechanics and the whys and wherefores of quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. Now, when interest rates are low, uh, bonds, which are essentially debt, it's expensive to buy when interest rates are low. And when interest rates are high, bond is very, yeah, bonds are very cheap to buy. Okay, so during the global financial crisis, uh, the central bank had it, the Bank of England, like other central banks around the world, had cut interest rates to zero. And the idea of cutting interest rates is by making saving less profitable and by making uh, loans and debt and credit cheaper. And by doing these two things, increasing the amount of money in the economy. And essentially, by doing that, you know, increasing the growth by a relative amount. But during the global financial crisis, um, interest rates were zero, i.e. they really couldn't go any lower. You can't, um, you know, you can't pay somebody to lend them money. That's ridiculous. So, uh, and the economy still weren't growing. They were still falling off a cliff. Demand was still cratering. So they engaged in quantitative easing. And the idea was that they would buy bonds... They would buy government, mainly uh, sovereign debt, in Britain's case, gilts, in America's case, treasuries, in German, in the European Central Bank's case, it was bunds. And the idea was that they would, by doing that, in theory, directly inject cash into the economy because they would be buying bonds for cash, essentially. And it was a way of loosening money, even though they had hit the zero lower interest rate bound, as you know, essentially. Um, 
But that meant that they bought a whole bunch of bonds when interest rates were near zero, i.e. the the bonds were very expensive, right? Now what they're doing is they're engaging in the opposite of that, quantitative tightening, where essentially what they're doing is they're selling these bonds back into the market. But guess what? Interest rates are now much higher, and therefore the bonds are much cheaper. So they bought these bonds when they were expensive, and now they're selling them while they're cheaper, So, of course, they're making a loss on that transaction. If you buy a share when it's expensive and you sell it when it's cheap, you make a loss. And that's what the Bank of England are doing. The question I've got to you, Philip, though, is why do they even have to engage in quantitative tightening at all? First of all, it's never been done. So they have no idea what effect it's going to have on the overall money supply. Secondly, they're ramping up interest rates. If they really think that interest rate or or, or the money supply needs to be tightened farther why do they need to engage in quantitative tightening why can't they just increase interest rates even higher like surely it ultimately has the same effect of expanding the money supply and while it made sense to do quantitative easing when further money expansion was needed as even as interest rates were zero there is no kind of upper bound on interest rates there is a lower bound but not an upper bound so why do they even need to engage in quantitative why couldn't they just have kept all of these bonds they bought on their balance sheet kept them on the balance sheet until they reached maturity at which stage the government would pay the bank of england and the bank of england out of those profits would pay back the government and it would be problem solved i really don't get why they're engaging in quantitative tightening it's a mystery to me well, um, well, there's a few things. There, there, we're, we we can't be a hundred percent sure. Frankly, actually, um, their stated uh, goal with quantitative tightening is to free up fiscal space, uh, or not fiscal space. Sorry, monetary space. So, if, if all these bonds are on the balance sheet and the banking system's flooded with cash, uh, you can't engage in quantitative easing next time. Now, that's what they're saying. Do I fully believe it? Not really. Look, I assume, I haven't looked deeply into it, but if they're raising interest rates and the banking system is still uh, filled filled with cash, they must be using a new mechanism for setting interest rates. They used to use these open market purchases themselves to set interest rates. I'm guessing that they're probably using the interest on overnight bank reserves now to set the interest rate. Now, we are going down a real rabbit hole here of how central banks and the banking system works. But my guess, if I were to take a guess, is it's probably twofold. The... um, the non-standard way that they are currently setting interest rates, uh, that I assume they are currently setting interest rates, uh, probably isn't optimal. They probably want to get back to the old time-tested 500-year-old system, call it what you want, maybe 400-year-old system of um, open market purchases in order to set interest rates. It's probably cleaner for um, a wide variety of reasons. Um, uh, there are also questions about central bank holding these very long dated assets on their balance sheets, but I don't know. And the fact of the matter is, I don't think anyone really knows, except a few people in the Bank of England, why they want to offload these things. But I think the real um, the real nub of this is uh, something's gone very wrong with the central bank, um, with what it's doing, with its justifications for doing so, and with the way it communicates with the public. Um, so just to give some sense here, um, if you read through the report, 
they the the committee talked to all sorts of people. It talked to um, Bank of England economists. It talked to Treasury economists. It talked to the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury. It talked to uh, professors of finance. It talked to market practitioners in the financial markets, and. I read through the whole report and I didn't find a single person questioning the the um, the QE program itself. Um, it, there weren't really even that many criticisms of the quantitative tightening program themselves. How they managed to find all of these people who agreed that QE was a good idea is a mystery to me because I know loads of people who think QE was a stupid idea. I think QE was a stupid idea. Many people do. But what is was also interesting that's one thing that's so much interesting in this report i wish the media would cover it um the other thing that's really interesting about it is no one really agrees on anything beyond the fact that qe is a good idea no one agrees on anything else and sometimes the the agreements are completely are actually quite shocking so i'll give you an example um they they interview um uh dr uh, Dr. Sentence, I think it's Andrew Sentence is his name. He was an external advisor, I think, to the Monetary Policy Committee. Um, I don't think he was directly employed by the Bank of England, but he's pretty much adjacent. Um, he stated as saying that uh, he was only sure that the earlier QE, that is the initial quantitative easing that was put in place in 2008, 2009, justified the cost. So he's saying, I think we had four rounds of QE by the end of it here. And he's saying only round one justified the cost. But then he warned that, quote, we should not be too preoccupied with these fiscal costs, end quote. Um, that is something else. Look, I I understand. I I did monetary economics in my as my main um, uh, master's uh, thesis, and so I'm I know these debates extremely well. I know how economists think about this stuff, and they tend to think about the the fiscal operations of government and the central banks and the way that they interact as almost like a machine, like a technocratic tool to get things done. And that's exactly what makes them say things that on their face seem bizarre, like, don't be too preoccupied with the fiscal costs, even though I've just told you that three of the four rounds of QE were a waste of money. They say bizarre things like that because from a very abstract point of view, yeah, in a sense, if you're playing around with economic models, maybe you don't take into account the fiscal costs. But the hard reality is this is costing money. It's, it's again, to quote what the committee said, it says this could potentially impact Treasury's spending power for the next decade. This, this is real stuff. This is super nuts stuff, okay? The government needs money to spend on certain things. Various governments of various programs. If there's a recession, there's going to be a need for some fiscal space and so on. Yet these guys at the bank just go, no, my economic model kind of tells me you shouldn't have to worry about all that. And all that stuff's just rubbish politics and we don't have to pay any attention to it. This is crazy. This is an utterly crazy situation. And what this report should stimulate is a massive discussion of how the central bank's completely out of control. It's completely out of control. It's It's got way too tied up in its own theories. It's It's got completely down the rabbit hole on this QE thing. Most of its defenders can't even defend the QE program beyond the initial burst of QE. It's completely crazy. It's a bunch of people who don't agree on anything saying, oh, you're tightening too fast, you're tightening too slow. So really the big question is, why aren't we having a public discussion about this? 
And on that, we can only speculate. The Treasury Committee did its job here, and it did its job well. I would criticise it to say I don't know why they didn't find more people to come in front of them and criticise the entire QE programme itself. I don't know why they couldn't find those people. Um, But that's a minor criticism, though. Apart from that, they did their job pretty well. Um, So who hasn't done their job? Journalists haven't done their job. And why haven't they? I don't know. I can't get into their heads. I mean, I know a few journalists. I know a few business editors. But, you know, I know a little bit. But I can't get into their heads. But here's the thing. Here's my impression. After 2008, 2009, financial crisis blows up. If anyone was old enough to remember those times, the the press was flooded with critical economics discourse, as it were. That's why I decided to do economics, because it was such an interesting time. That's gone today. And I think one of the reasons that's gone is because when that happened, the the financial institutions, both public and private, realised that they needed to get a handle on the press about them. That means the Bank of England needed to get a handle on the press, the Treasury did, and so did the financial sector in the City of London. Same thing happened in America. And so I think what happened was they got much more savvy at managing uh, the public relations around these things. Um, But I think that's becoming dangerous. I think now you have journalists that flock to monetary policy committee meetings. I mean, usually they'll have them marked in their diary. This will be their big day. This will be the business journalist's big day because they get to report on interest rates. And it's the one story that they can put out once a month or once every three months or however often it is, that people will all look at because they'll be interested in their mortgage and so on. And so they've got really invested in this. And and it seems to me like that's turning it into a bit of a, a love-in. At the bank, you go and you meet the, and you want to be the best friends with the, the director or whatever to get the scoop early and all that. And look what's happening. We've had this, I would argue, enormous outgrowth now that is the Bank of England, that doesn't actually have a clear sense of what it's doing. It missed the inflation, by the way. Has anyone rem- Can we remember that at all? It, uh, it can't justify any of this stuff anymore. And that's all, that's all bad enough. But then it comes out and it ends up costing the public an absolute fortune. And we're not even having a discussion about it. Something's really rotten here. I would like to make a broader point, Philip, if I may, about what might be rotten. And I think the Bank of England is part of a much bigger issue than the Bank of England itself or independent central banks themselves. And I think it very much speaks to some of the things we discuss regularly on multipolarity. From the late 70s and through the 1980s, there was an idea uh, among um, elites in you know various Western nations and 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 through international organisations, that there was a better and more efficient way of running countries than the way they were at the time. In the past, you essentially had the people elected, you know, governments and legislatures, and those representatives, you know, with some expert advice wrote and then voted on legislation and he had an executive branch which kind of ran the country essentially but you know a large number of kind of very influential people believed that there was a better way to run things and that is rather than just seeing kind of representative democracy as the kind of the end of itself 
the idea was to, to, to move towards what was called a stakeholder democracy, whereby the demos, the people, would only be one kind of stakeholder within society, within the governance of a country. And the idea was that it would be more efficient if experts, whether they be academic experts, whether they be NGO experts, whether they be um, you know, leading experts within large corporations, uh, whether they be charities, um, all of these people were, in inverted commas, stakeholders, and they should really have a much greater say in the way things were organized. And basically from the mid to late 90s, a whole range of international institutions were set up to essentially run uh, countries and economies in a more rational way, governed by experts and technocrats and stakeholders. And a lot of the main institutions, like, for instance, the European Union and its single market, are kind of part of this idea. But another big part was central banks, the idea that they shouldn't be political beasts the idea that what you had to do is remove them from the kind of the from from the kind of the surly hands of greasy politicians who are beholden to the whims of the people and instead separate the central bank from that and get, and give it to a kind of technocratic elite experts essentially um and that was part of a you know we did that with a whole range of things in the UK a whole range of areas of public life are uh, run or, or, or governed or, or, or at least um, perhaps not administered but, uh, but, but kind of overseen by such organizations and then on, as I say on an international level you also have a lot of other kind of international obligations which kind of restrict governments because of the, the you know the kind of the, the the barriers that are placed around government's room for maneuver by experts who put together these interlocking international obligations and treaties. Now, we are seeing a big rise of populism, and this is happening throughout the Western world. It's something that's panicking and terrifying um, existing legacy political elites. And the best way to think about populism, in fact, it's not just some kind of random explosion of kind of discontented bigots and racists. No, no, no. Populism, is, in its essence, is an effort to put back on the table for political debate those things which have been removed. And it's called populism because the popular will wants to talk about these issues, but it can't because they've been removed from political debate. The kind of the Overton window has shrank or shifted, right? And populists want to put them back on. And essentially, this is a story of that move towards a stakeholder democracy. Because that stakeholder democracy, that kind of consensus of the experts, the consensus of the, the technocrats removed a whole range of things from political debate. And one of those was essentially central banks. The idea of having an independent central bank is a kind of central tenet of the way that, uh, you know, the political elites believe the world and, you know, nations should be run. And now we're seeing in the same way that, you know, the broader economic consensus and the broader social contract across the West is starting to break down and populism is starting to rise as people want to start discussing these things again. So I think we're going to start to have a discussion about central banks and whether they have managed the economy successfully. And again, this is a core of 
the multipolar multipolarity podcast uh, thesis that as we shift to a new world, this won't just affect geopolitics and strategy and international trade and global macroeconomics. It's also going to affect individual societies as well. So I think this central bank thing, it's really important in the way that you put it, Philip, that there really ought to be a discussion about whether the, the, the Bank of England as the central bank of the UK has done a good job or whether it's gone completely off the rails and is making a pig's ear of monetary policy. But I also think that there's a broader discussion to be had, and that's whether central banks should be independent at all or whether they should move back to uh, political control. And I'm not sure I have an opinion either way, but this fits very neatly with the trend across the Western world that we're seeing of, you know, the demos within individual Western nations wanting to start to control things for themselves again within their own democracy, right? Rather than having them taken away and controlled by technocrats beyond democratic control. So I really think while the central bank might not be caught up on that for now, you know, the Bank of England might be eventually. <laughs>